Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Well, welcome back once again to the epic narrative. We're so jack stacked and racked, ready to go today. Now, if you uh, if you were paying attention, you saw this week's episode's title: Family Tension. <laughs> and for some of you, that's a story of your life. No, that's not nice. I well, it is. You know, I <laughs> there are some people who have grown up with grown up with family tension, and they literally they they literally don't have a problem feeling comfortable anywhere that tension is not prevalent. And I've been around families, I mean, not mine, of course, but I've been around families where there is maybe someone in the family and or the entire family seems to try to create tension when everybody's getting along because it's just so crazy abnormal for everybody to get along that in their own way, it's like, I need a comfortable environment. So I need tension. I need, I need, I need to be, I need to know, I need to know that people are alive around me <laughs> and, and all this like happy talk is, is scary to me. So we're going to get somebody ticked off at somebody else, or I'm going to bring up one of those stories that, that we've never all agreed on, or I'm going to throw in a little bit of politics just, just to stir the pot. Some as my, not that my mom would do that. Okay. My mom. She would say, well, that really stirred the pot. I, and it's true, right? If you've ever made a nice, thick, uh, you know, stew or sauce, even even a, like a nice homemade tomato sauce, right? There's always this thin layer on top of really watery stuff. But then, you know, you stir the pot and all the thick stuff comes up from the bottom. And oh, so good. So good. My wife makes some amazing tomato sauce and meatballs. Holy smokalokies. She can make some meatballs. She's not Italian. She's Greek, but she learned from an Italian. And and I know there's different styles to meatballs I do. There's the little ones and the big ones. And But my wife, my wife makes really large meatballs. <laughs> Sounds horrible. Heavy, heavy garlic. Oh, so good. The whole house smells so good for, you know, the the whole day that she's cooking. And then when you actually serve it with, you know, with the spaghetti or whatever, it's like everybody gets like one or two meatballs because you think, oh, that's nothing. And then you eat them and it's like, oh, they're so, I'm so full. So full. But that was so worth it. And everybody has to have some because there's so much garlic in it that if one person doesn't have it, they're just going to be in misery the rest of the day because everybody's going to have garlic breath but them. And you find that if with garlic breath, if both parties have it, you kind of neutralize each other. But if only one person has it, right? <laughs> Am I right? If only one person has garlic or, or onions, then the, the poor person who didn't have it is the one who suffers. Not the one who had it, the one who didn't. <laughs> they suffer. So anyways... If you don't have garlic at my house, if you don't have a meatball at my house, then um, then then start handing out uh, gum <laughs> after this after the uh, meal. You'll you'll be glad you did. Okay. Family tension. That's where we're at. Uh, now, basically, Abr- Abram's been in this land of Canaan uh, for uh, ten years. Okay, he showed up around seventy-five. And by the end of this chapter, he's 86. And this chapter takes about a year. So uh, at the beginning of the chapter, he's basically 85 years old. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not been an uneventful 10 years, but it's not like he's cranking out uh, ridiculous, um, what do I want to say? Uh, um, he's not at war every week. <laughs> what did I want to say? Not tension. That's not what I wanted. Bob, wake up. There you are. All right. Adventures. See, I knew. You just had to wake up in there. I knew you. He's not having like every uh, a different adventure every week. Most weeks are pretty boring. Most weeks are just 
are just trades and markets and and celebrations and banquets and and you know wine and song and and dessert delicious desserts it's it's been a lot of fun influence influential people ambassadors uh it's you know trade talks that's it's pretty boring that's why we only get these snippets here and there of, along the way like i said the the story of the bible is not designed to be a day-by-day account it's just designed to be don't forget this part when you tell the story of abraham abram slash abraham don't forget to tell this part because this shows us key characteristics this helps us understand where you know what the heart of god the character of god if you remember last time we talked about the covenant how the covenant is the character of god he brings all of everything i don't know if i ever actually finished that did i i think i got distracted didn't i bob yeah, you're right. So the reason why, wow, how did I forget this? How did you not tell me? Okay, the reason why God walked all the way through uh, in between the two um, severed, the severed parts of the animals, the three animals that were three years old and the birds at the end, the reason why he walked the whole way through, the, the torch and the pot of fire came all the way through, was he was he was telling Abram, you're not going to be responsible to keep this this covenant. I will handle all responsibilities to make sure that your family line is as many as the stars, and your family line will come back to the promised land after close to 400 years ish, at, in a foreign land, in which they allow themselves to become slaves. They allow themselves to serve the foreign land, but I'm going to bring them back. And I know I'm going to bring them back because the land that I promised you, which of course you remember, Abram has no idea how he's going to know he has possession of the land because he doesn't plan on going to war about it again uh, uh, with it. And he doesn't plan on buying it all. So he's like, how am I going to know? God's like the land I'm going to bestow upon you, the land that your family is going to fill up and in essence oversee and control because they're going to be more numerous than the stars. That land is so wrought with sin that eventually they're going to destroy themselves. Because I know how this ends. This is how sin always ends. The wages of sin is always death. I really can't believe I forgot to say that last week. Oh my gosh. It's a good thing I tell this tell the story in an, you know every week in this podcast that you know I can go back and catch stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I might, I might actually have. Uh, that might have been. A, who knows? Anyways, it doesn't matter. It's worth repeating if I'm repeating it. That's what I meant to say. Okay. So verse one, seven and a half, almost eight, eight minutes into this episode. Verse one. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Hmm. Now, Sarah, you remember Sarah. She's supernaturally gorgeous. You remember that? Just a few years ago, when she was in Egypt, everybody there, everybody there, all the heads of state wanted to marry her. And Pharaoh did. He just couldn't consummate the marriage. She's still drop dead gorgeous, but she has no children. So I'm guessing her hope is starting to, shall we say, wane a little bit. You remember after Egypt, Abram walked around the whole country, which took months and months. And he ultimately settled like miles away from Sarah. So it wasn't like they were seeing each other on a regular basis. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that he went down to Egypt and treated her like his sister, sister, not his sister as in wife, which the word could be translated either way. So. She beckons him back to the main camp, I guess, is the way you'd say it. He's, he sends, you know, she sends him a message, tell Abram, you know, to come back and live with us. And so Abram moves back into his tent and, you know, he's probably enjoying the meals again. And Sarah's a beautiful woman. He likes looking at her and, and they, uh, you know, they probably get to know each other again and having a good time. And maybe after one of those, Mm, 
family session. No, it wasn't family. Uh, practices. One of those practice sessions. That's a good word. No one will know what I'm talking about except those that are really following along. So after maybe one of those practice sessions, maybe not. It's up to you. Verse 2, she says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. So she's she's blaming this um, on God. God has kept me from having children. So I have a solid plan. Because clearly if I'm not supposed to have children for you, I'm supposed to make sure that you have children, which I can do because I have a slave. I have a slave through which you could attempt to have children. Now, I'm guessing she's fertile, but I don't know that. And we won't know unless you try. And maybe this whole time, maybe maybe you were supposed to be trying. Maybe, you know, we picked her up in, in Egypt along with a whole lot of other things. We picked her up in Egypt. Maybe she's supposed to be the, the surrogate mother. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took the Egyptian slave Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. So this is not like a concubine situation. This is a straight-up marriage. Abram marries a second wife. Her name is Hagar. She's young. She's royalty. So she, uh, uh, the, the oral traditions say she was an Egyptian princess. Even though she was a servant, she was given as a servant to Sarah as a, as a thank you for stopping by. Please tell your God not to kill us type of gift. Now, she, you know, was she the daughter of the Pharaoh? Yes. You know, of which wife of the Pharaoh? We have no idea what tribe she came from, what nation she came from. Uh, a lot of that is speculation, but she was a princess. She was part of the royal family. She was a servant to Sarah, which meant that she was, she had to do what she was told, but she always represented what had happened in Egypt. She always represented a, a relational connection to, to Egypt that said, please do not take any negative things out on us. It was not our fault that that you deceived us. It was not our fault that we tried to marry your wife. It's not our fault. It's it was it, we were deceived. And this is to remind us all of what really happened down here. We've given you a ton of riches and we've given you a relationship to make sure that we stay in, you know, without any tension, to make sure we stay in your good graces. So in that verse. It's more than just, you know, a day's plan. That's why I think she probably brought it up after they had slept together. And she's, you know, she's she's talking to him afterwards and says, you know, I'm not pregnant again. Like, I've, I've waited a month. Nothing's happened. And this is it. I, I, I think, I don't think God wants me to have your children. I think... You know, the plan of God is for me to provide for you someone to have your children. And in that plan, I think he gave me the answer to that when he gave me the princess Hagar as my servant. So I want to give her to you to be your wife. And let's see what happens. Let's see if this plan of God is the what I think it is. Now, Hagar, it says he slept with Hagar. She conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So I think both women in the story have um, deep heart issues. And both of them are dealing with, I think, some pretty negative emotions, whether they be bitterness, anger, pride, uh, Rejection, disappointment, disappointment in, in themselves, disappointment in God, disappointment in in circumstances and the way that life has played out, not the way that they planned it to play out. All of that is is in these quote decisions that are being made. And I do know that a lot of times it's it's fair to ask. You know, I've I've made some pretty big decisions in my life. I've walked away from some pretty crazy there, you know, opportunities. 
And, and it's fair to ask, am I doing this for, like, am I hurt? Am I offended? And I, I find that asking yourselves those questions, you know, asking yourself that question, if you can answer them honestly, I think it's a great way to process the decision-making uh, world. And, and there's been many times where I've thought, okay, I'm going to make this decision. And, and I've done the processing of, am I hurt? Am I offended? And then it turns out I am. And then it turns out that if I take care of that hurt, if I release forgiveness, if I, if I make the effort to be thankful, if I do what's necessary to do the right thing, then I am released from that tension, and then the, the decision no longer is imperative. I don't have to make that decision. A decision that I was like totally convinced needed to happen. And most of the time, it's not that I'm going to leave somewhere. It's that I have to have this conversation. I'm, I'm, going, to have to, I'm going to have to talk to them. I'm going to have to talk to them because I'll tell you right now, this, this is the way they're seeing things, and this is why they're wrong. And I need to, I need to help them see this. And in helping them see it, I can correct, you know, this lie that they're believing about themselves or about me or about their circumstances. And I can finally straighten out the whole relational connection because I see this so clearly. And then I hear the Holy Spirit say, and, um, and, and uh, so how are, how, are, how are you doing about this? And then I'll, I'll hear my answer be something like, "Well, I guess I'm I'm kind of hurt, or I guess I'm kind of a, I, I guess I'm kind of okay. Well, let's work this through." And by the time I'm all done working through, it's like, yeah, I actually don't need to talk to them at all because I was 90% of the problem. And once I took out the 90%, I really didn't care about the last 10%. They're fine. They're going to be fine. I'm fine. They're fine. We're all good. We can just move on. But these two women, I think, were dealing with some pretty deep-seated negative emotions about their life and about their circumstances. I mean, you can picture Hagar, an Egyptian princess, at the very least, figuring she's gonna she's going to be released to be married to an ambassador, to an emissary, to some sort of uh, royal connection, and somewhere around the world. And instead, she's given as a servant to a barren uh, tribal leader from Assyria, who doesn't even live in Assyria near near you know Nimrod and all the all the wealth and ambiance of that world. No, no, no. She lives in a tent in the middle of a big old field in the middle of freaking Canaan. This is my life now? This is my life. I'm a, I'm a princess and now I'm a servant. I have to do the bidding of my master. Now I'm guessing Sarah knew how to treat her well. She took advantage of the fact that this girl grew up in royalty and had a, uh, an amazing education probably. And I'm sure Sarah looked, one of the reasons why Sarah looked so good all the time is because her makeup was right. Egyptians were known for beautiful makeup and jewelry and how to wear silks. It, it was, it was uh, you know, they, they made life work together. But imagine all that going on and, and Sarah's sleeping with Abram. You know, Hagar doesn't have any interest in him. And then Sarah comes to him and says, uh, come, comes to Hagar uh, so, my servant, I've decided that you were given to me in order for me to give you to my husband so that he can have babies with you. So I want you to, you, you, you are going to marry my husband and you are going to uh, bear his children in my name. You're going to be a surrogate for me. So, so Hagar is learning, okay, not only am I now a servant, I'm going to be forced to marry a man I'm not interested in, which was not unusual in that culture. A lot of women had, you know, were forced into marriages. That that part's true. You're going to be forced to marry a, a man that you're not interested in and bear his children. But grant, just so you know, they're not going to be your children. They're going to be my children, and they're going to belong to Abram and I. So all of this goes through uh, with Abram's. Consent. I mean, it might have been passive consent, but it was consent nonetheless. And he goes along with this plan. And in this plan, he gets to marry Hagar and he gets to sleep with her. And in the end, it says she conceived. Now, so at least a month goes by since the wedding. 
Because that's the only way that they would know that they were pregnant is if they didn't have their their if they didn't have to go visit the red tent uh, at the you know during the month. And they usually planned weddings around that event as well, so that they were at optimal um, fertilization when the wedding would occur, so that they could start having babies right away. So she gets pregnant. She knows she's pregnant and says she despises. She began to despise her mistress. So he marries her, and and so she is Abram's like second tier wife, right? She's still Sarah's servant, but she's also a wife of Abram. So so at some level they're still uh, connected. It's not like she now has her own tent separate from Sarah and off to the side. Like now, uh, not that it would be this way, but that you know, Sarah lives on one side of Abram and. Hagar lives on the other side of, of, of Abram, and he has a big tent in the middle, and the two of them serve Abram at his beck and call, and then they also live their own lives. No, she's still uh, Hagar's. Uh, Hagar is still Sarah's servant. Get your tongue working, Bob. Okay, I'm working on it. Uh, let me get it straightened out. She's still Sarah's servant, and in that position, she knows she, she, that she's pregnant. So she's looking at Sarah now as the second tier wife. Her present, her pregnancy, and her from her perspective, is evidence of God's favor. Whether it was the God she worshipped or the God that Abram worshipped, didn't matter to her, because it happened quickly. It happened within weeks of being married. She was pregnant. Not years and years and years of being married and still not being pregnant like Sarah. It also, she saw this as evidence of her righteousness. So the fact that she was able to get pregnant, she figured she was the righteous one. She was the one that was in good favor with God. She was the one that was right before God. Sarah must not have either one of these things. So when it says that she began to despise her mistress, it means that she started to elevate herself to the position of first wife. She started to uh, belittle Sarah, not obey Sarah, push back against Sarah's uh, request. Hagar, I need you to make such and such for dinner tonight. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm going to be doing dinner tonight. Maybe you can make it. Hagar, I need you to prepare a meal for your master, Abram. We will be dining, you know, together or whatever. Not dining. I know she wouldn't have said that, but. And Hagar would be like, no. No, I think you need to prepare a meal for your husband. I'm carrying my husband's baby. That sort of stuff. Now, when it comes to the, the annals of history, Hagar is, is exalted amongst the servants. She is somebody who is one of them who is now married to the master, an incredibly wealthy, influential man, and she's carrying his child, which means she will forever have a position within the family. Because if it's a son, then he will stand to inherit all of Abram's possessions and the covenant that he has with God. And all of this is coming through a servant. So the servant's admire Hagar. They uplift her. And Sarah now becomes uh, intimidated because servants servants would refuse to do things for Sarah because Hagar asked them to do something else. That's, that's the kind of tension that's developing here. Hagar would be like, uh, I need you to go, you know, pick up some you know, uh, some beets and some leeks and some onions and uh, prepare a uh, goat for tonight's dinner. And then the servant would see Sarai and Sarah would say, hey, I'd like to do some lamb for dinner tonight. Can you pick up some, some whatever, you know, dill and saffron and something else? And they'd be like, um, no, uh, Hagar wants to do goat tonight. I'm already going to pick up the necessary things for her. But I told you we're doing lamb. 
Well, you need to check with Hagar on that because she already told me what we're doing for dinner. That's the kind of stuff that was going on. That's the kind of tension that was building. Sarah had become intimidated. She couldn't push back because of the fact that Hagar was elevating herself. Now, Hagar, in essence, starts to live and move as royalty again. She moved from this mindset of, I'm a servant of Sarah in obedience to the Pharaoh to this place of, I'm now a queen. I'm now in charge. Like, And she knew how to operate in that royal mindset, and she steps right into it and becomes intimidating and belittling to Sarah. So <laughs> Sarah doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to do. Sarah goes to Abram in verse 5. I, I love this. You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So she goes, not only complains to Abram about the behavior of Hagar, she blames Abram for the problems that she has with Hagar because Hagar and Abram went along with the plan that Sarah gave them. This is awesome, right? Whenever you come up with a plan, and you got to remember, she, I believe she brought God in on this, right? God told me, God's kept me from having babies, so I'm going to provide a way for you to have babies in place of me. All of that's going on, and when it all comes true, and then, the, and then it all goes sideways, She's now the victim. This is not my fault. Abram, you're the one who's up with her. You're the one who took her as a wife. Just because I said it doesn't mean that you had to do it. And now that she is pregnant and the plan's working perfectly, this is clearly a problem for you. Now, Abram's choice literally sets the direction of two nations. Two brothers uh, ultimately, right? We, we Let's not pretend we don't know how the story goes. Two brothers will be at odds against each other and their nations will be in tension against each other for thousands of years. And it, it kind of all hinges right here. Abram had a choice. He, he had a choice, a huge choice. His, his answer in verse 6, your slave... Is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar so badly that she fled from her. So, Abram bails. Abram says, listen, she was your sir, slave before she was, or servant before she was my wife, so therefore you still have rule over her, not me. So do with her whatever you want. He bails on responsibility. He bails on, on honor. He could have honored Hagar as his wife and honored Sarah as his wife, and he could have brought reconciliation between the two. He could have, he could have directed them to figure it out. He could have said, listen, Sarah, she's my wife. You're my wife. I won't have tension in the home. We need to figure this out. He didn't say, you know what, let me go to God and let me ask him, what do you think we should do here? He's not, I mean, there's so many different ways that he could went, went at this. He, there's so many ways he could have brought reconciliation to this. Oh, I, I don't know. Was he internally conflicted? Yes, I think he had tremendous uh, tension. He had a new young wife who was pregnant. I'm sure he hoped it was with his son. He had a beautiful wife he had been with for years who had been through so much of life and life experiences had worked through so much tension and danger and 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 uh, and success and blessings and favor. He he looked at her and he thought, gosh, she's awesome, but she's never had a baby. And this one over here is gorgeous and young, and she's has has my baby. Like I don't I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And rather than say get along, figure it out, he's like, do with it, do with her whatever you want. It's your choice. She was your slave before she was my uh, my wife. Go for it. So Sarah bolstered in her 
in her approach with the uh, backing of Abram. Right? If, if Hagar goes to Abram now, all she's going to hear is, you belong to Sarah. Figure it out. Do what you're told to do. And let's let's just all get, you know, let's just do this right. You're servant first. You're my wife second. You're my second wife. So let's keep it that way. So it says that Sarah mistreated her. And uh, man, the... Hmm, this is uh, this this is an aggressive word, all right. This is a lot of hostility. This is uh, this word carries with it uh, abusive type of behavior, emotionally, and possibly physically. And remember, she's pregnant with with uh, Abram's uh, child. So he so Sarah's putting Hagar in her place, and and it. And because of her violence toward Hagar, the servants turn against Hagar as well. Because if they side with Hagar, then they also become abused. So Hagar is feeling incredibly alone. She doesn't have the backing of Abram, which is horribly dishonoring on his part. And uh, and weak-minded and lazy and just... He, that's, a, he, that's just bad all the way around, right? He, she doesn't have the backing of Sarah, obviously. She doesn't have even uh, emotional or physical support of the other servants whom at one point exalted her and thought she was awesome. So there's a ton of tension, a lot of hostility. And Hagar runs, just runs. And the stories of Hagar running is... is like literal, like maybe a you know a bag of of food, bread, and a bottle of water. Like she just she just takes off running. And it says the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. Sure. So that's where God meets her. He was there, where she was. God's response to Hagar is really important. The Lord says in verse 9, the angel of the Lord says to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. In other words, you're going to give birth to a nation. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be like a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against every everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. I'll break that down in a minute. I know that sounds horrible. And she gave uh, this name uh, to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she says, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well is called Ber Lachrul, and it's still there today between Kadesh and Barid. Barid. So Hagar bore Abram's son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar was born to Ishmael. Uh, bore, when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Read the verse, Bob, and then go on with the story. I get so excited. I skip the part where I actually have to read and just hope that I got it right on my way out. All right. <laughs> God's response is this. He wants Hagar to keep the family together. That's, that's what he's saying. He's like, go back and serve Sarah. He doesn't mean go back and be beaten by her. Go back and be emotionally traumatized by her. Go back and be belittled and, and subservient and just crawl on the ground because that's your, that's your destiny. That's your purpose in life. I want you to be you know, a slave. I want you to be this, this uh, worm of a person. Because that's not the heart of God, because we know what the heart of God is, is to bring about someone's person, uh, the identity and destiny that he gave them at the beginning. He wants them to be somebody who is always connected to the creator God. He's saying, go back and serve. It's, it's kind of the opposite of the word where it says Lot, Lot parted from Abram, and, and it's more than just physically, it's talking about spiritually. He's saying, go back and spiritually align yourself with Sarah. 
Get yourself in the right place with, with me. Now, she was not surprised by the angels. She was not surprised to be talking to God. Why? Because this was not a unique, like, out-of-the-blue experience. Talking to God was something people did in the, in the family of Abram. It's something that Abram did on a regular basis. So this was not some sort of out-of-the-blue thing. This was an opportunity for her. And she interacts with him in such a way that she goes back. So God's response is restoration. He wants Hagar to keep the family together. He says, listen, the brothers are actually both going to be nations. He doesn't say one will be a slave and one will be a master. There's no hierarchy given here. He goes, they're both going to be nations. There, God always has more blessings, right? So many times somebody sees another person being blessed and they think, oh, I missed out. Oh, I could have been a multimillionaire. I could have been uh, a world-renowned author. I could have been a world-renowned speaker. I could have been, I could have been, I could have been. We, we treat other people's favor from God as though God, you know, had, had emptied the bank account. And now we, now we have to wait. You know, the next generation gets the next round of blessings from God. God always has blessings. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, Hagar, I'm still going to be faithful. I'm still going to be there. As a matter of fact, I'll make sure that you have so many relatives. An entire nation is going to come from you as well. But that doesn't mean that Sarah won't have a son. And Sarah's son also won't be a nation. The two nations are going to be hand in hand. That's where, it's, that's where it says, you know, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, which means he's going to have tremendous focus. He's going to have tremendous tenacity. He's going to be considered um, not ignorant. What's the word? Uh, uh, bullheaded? No, Bob. Oh, you're, you're no help. Thank you. He's, he's just going to be, he's going to have that, uh, yeah, that tenacity to go out and make something happen, to do the hard work and make it look easy. That's what donkeys do. And then he says, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. It doesn't mean that they're going to be punching each other. It means they're going to be in proximity. His name's going to be God will, God will hear. And he's going to be in proximity to his brother. They're going to be working for each other. Brothers, Brother and brother will work together. They're going to both need each other in order to accomplish what the other one is doing. Whatever Ishmael sets his hands, hands to, he's going to need his brother to help him with. And whatever his brother is trying to do, he's going to need Ishmael to help him with. There's going to be tension, but there's always tension in balance, right? If something's in balance, if you have a... a a teeter-totter and it's in balance there's there's tension because one side isn't greater than the other that's this is what god's predicting he's like you're all going to get blessed on this this is not a the tension is not a curse it's a it's a truth he's just saying this is what it takes well family was meant to be together tension within the family is not unusual just know it's going to be it's going to happen don't look at it as a curse look at it as a reality it's the way things are. So Hagar goes home. And clearly things work out. Things are working out fine. She gives birth. And they name him Ishmael. Just like you know God told her to. I have a feeling that. That, that uh, Abram and. Uh, uh, what's uh, Abram and Sarah probably had a, a bit of a conversation when they realized that that you know the the servant who was bearing the child was out in the wilderness somewhere, no one knew where, just got uh, you know up and ran off. I think probably Abram looked at her and said, "Sarah, that's not what I meant when I said do with her as you want. I didn't mean for you to beat her, emotionally abuse her, and then make her run away. That's not helpful to us or the family." So things worked out. She came home. She had her promises from God. God heard and saw the one who was feeling unseen and unheard.
And isn't that the way of God? You're feeling unseen and unheard, and he's like, I am right here. You think all the blessings that you, you know, clearly Hagar believed all the favor and blessings were on her, and then things turned suddenly, and she she literally thought all these blessings were now a curse, and God's like, no, they're a blessing. I I always bless. <laughs> I don't I don't turn the blessings into a curse. No, the enemy tries to have you do that. The enemy was part of this, right? The enemy wanted death to Hagar. The enemy wanted death to the to the child. God's like, no, I want restoration. I want family. And I've got more than enough blessings for everyone to share. And these brothers are going to work together. And that tension is going to be real, but it's going to be amazing because the whole world is going to be blessed through Abram. And I promised him that. I am not short on blessings or short on following through on my promises. None of your choices are going to make a difference. That's why I walked in between all of the split up animals because I cover both ends of my covenant. Because the covenants with men can get a little shaky. They can uh, they can forget to follow through on things, but not me. Not me. All right, everyone, I'm glad that you hung out with us today. Another amazing chapter in the book of Genesis. I'll see you next week on The Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. All right. Welcome back to Bob Thoughts. Uh, so <clears throat> this week when I'm, uh, I, I believe I'm coming to you from South Dakota this week. Uh, I'm not recording it in South Dakota, but, you know, my life is pretty flexible. I get to, <laughs> that's what happens when you're jobless and homeless. You, uh. You, you have a lot of options you get to work out. Anyways, I want to talk to, uh, some of my thoughts regarding being offended. Now, being offended is something that uh, I, I hmm, was I raised in it? I just think culturally, everybody has a, has a realm in which they, they want to be offended. And, and, I, and I choose that word on purpose because whether it's uh, theologically you know, you want to be offended because you, you, you're looking for opportunity to prove to other people that you're correct and they're wrong. You, you want to be offended by their lies, offended by their, by their lack of study, offended by their, uh, you know, by their words, whatever. And uh, sometimes you want to be offended by their, somebody's foods. Um, sometimes you want to be offended by the way that they serve you uh, food. Sometimes you want to be offended by the um, by the weather. Oh, that was a tough one for me. I used to get offended by weather a lot. Uh, there's just, there's lots of things that people kind of grow up and they think I'm, I'm going to get offended over this. Like I, I'm going to choose uh, the, the right thing. I'm going to choose my thing. And anybody who disagrees with me, I'm going to get offended. And then I'm going to tell them what they, you know, how they're wrong. And then not only am I right, but I will have the right to no longer associate with them. This is a, this is, I don't know, a general picture of what being offended is like. So for me in my life about, I don't know, I want to say five, six years ago at the time of this recording, (laughs) Uh, I was challenged to find a place in which, in the Bible, in which Jesus was offended. And I thought, well, of course he was offended. And uh, the only place that I could actually find where it looked like he was offended was when he was in the temple and he uh, he shut down the marketplace so that he could teach the Gentiles. And lots and lots and lots of people I know present that whole story like he was angry and beat people with a whip and drove out all the animals and, um, you know, kicked over the tables and, quote, you know, the, the English translation is, you know, spilled the, the uh, coins all over the ground. And, and, and people have used that of angry, offended Jesus as an opportunity to be angry and offended as Christians. And uh, 
honestly, it didn't take much study to realize that there is nothing in that story that requires him to be angry. And I'm not going to go through it all, but if you want to hear it all, uh, you can go to season one of the Epic Narrative. I did a bonus podcast on it. Um, I forget what month it was on, but it's it's a bonus one. It's a bonus one because it, it was. I want to say it was done around April because it was done around the time that that uh, Easter was coming, and people always love Jesus in the temple getting pissed off because again, it gives them the excuse to get angry and point fingers and kick people out of the church and kick people out of their lives and 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 all that kind of stuff. But once I once I saw that Jesus really wasn't offended, I stepped back and said, wow, Jesus was never offended. Now, did Jesus deal with lies? Yes. Did he deal with religious tension? Yes. Did he interact with people who were angry with him? Yes. But Jesus did it from a place where he chose to not be offended by whether it was their ignorance or their theology or their lack of respect or their lack of honor. He chose to approach life from a place of no offense. And after all of that, now I've shortened a massive journey in my life, but I got to a place where I said, all right, I'm going to choose to not be offended anymore. Now, it takes practice, for sure. There were times I really, I really felt, I felt offended, but as I did the questions, and I, and I mentioned, uh, mentioned it in today's episode, I asked myself, Bob, what are you offended about? What about this makes you angry? And most of the time, it was a choice I was making because I had made a decision. I had, I had chosen to believe something. This person didn't agree with it, and I was going to, I was going to be offended. Or sometimes it was because that person's behavior was so rude I was going to be offended. Or that person was so inconsiderate with my time. Oh, man, I'm so time-oriented. But, but, you know, somebody who took advantage of my time or didn't consider it for my time, I would be, I would be offended, incensedly offended. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I'd be that way at red lights or people who, um, you know, when I couldn't find a parking lot and I was in a hurry, Time was time. Time tripped me up for a long time when it came to offense. It really did. But um, it's been a good journey. And what I found is, I don't have to be offended. I don't have to be offended. And I've had some very difficult conversations with people throughout the years. Um, people in authority over me. And many times they want me to be offended. And I'm not. Uh, because if I'm offended, right, it justifies their action. They can say, well, Bob just got offended and, you know, we couldn't have that on staff, so we, whatever. Like, and, 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 and I'm not, uh, I probably got too personal. But when you're not offended, it, it instead allowed for much better conversation and allowed for interactions that that actually brought about information that was healthy and helpful and i want to give uh just as a note like those that those who i had those conversations with and i've had them more than once oh because oh that's probably why i'm jobless at this point but uh, because there's something about me that causes that to happen. But those are thoughts we don't need to go into. But, but <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the end result was we ended up having good conversation, and that's to their credit, right? They chose not to be offended either. They just assumed I was. And it's very simple. Whether they're, and, and this happens uh, regardless of whether or not people are in authority over me or not. It, most of the time, people walk into a, quote, conflict, assuming the other person's already offended. So they get offended, and there's this negative energy that's already there. I purposely, when I'm in a restaurant, will ask for the, for the um, 
you know, the manager. And their immediate question is, you know, basically what's, what's wrong and how can I, how can I help? And I love to call them over and tell them how wonderful everything is because I just alleviate that tension and give them this awesome experience with talking with somebody who's not offended because I'm not going to get offended. I'm going to continue to choose to not be offended. I want to encourage you guys. You don't have to be offended. You can choose to not be offended. And I know that there's some who are going to listen to this and be like, uh, you know, in complete disagreement. As a matter of fact, you, there's some people who might listen to this and get offended over the fact that I'm not offended or that I think anybody can go through life and not be offended. That's going to be offensive. It's kind of funny, right? But that's fine. I, hey, I could be wrong. This is what I know. My life is far more filled with joy and hope and peace since I've chosen to not be offended. And anytime I sense that, that offense rolling back into my life, I sit back and say, okay, what's going on here, Bob? What about the circumstances causing you to think that you have some sort of right here, that you have some sort of um, defensive position to hold here. And uh, so far, it comes back to, uh, I don't. I, I really don't. I might have an opportunity for a conversation. And I'm going to come at that conversation not from a place of offense. I'm going to come at it from a place of life-giving questions. Not accusational questions, not defensive questions. Those questions are always fun, right? People are like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to get into it. Anyway, those are my thoughts today. We can talk about questions some other day. We've already gone over 10 minutes. You guys are awesome. Thanks for sticking around. Have yourself a fabulous day. everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys